This is the first of our judges. His name is Othniel. It goes like this. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot the Lord our God and served the Baals and the Asherahs. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel so that he sold them into the hands of Cushan Rishathiam, king of Aram Narathim, to whom the Israelites were subject for eight years. But when they cried out to the Lord, he raised up for them a deliverer, Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, who saved them. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him so that he became Israel's judge and went to war. The Lord gave Cushan Rishathiam, king of Aram, into the hands of Othniel, who overpowered him. So the land had peace for forty years, until Othniel, son of Kenaz, died. Once again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. Getting the Ammonites and the Amalekites to join him, Eglon came and attacked Israel, and they took possession of the city of Pams. The Israelites were subject to Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. Again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and he gave them a deliverer, Ehud, a left-handed man, the son of Gerad the Benjamite. The Israelites sent him with tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Ehud, or Ehud, had made a double-edged sword about a foot and a half long, which he strapped to his right thigh under his clothing. He presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, who was a very fat man. After Ehud had presented the tribute, he sent them on their way with the men who carried it. At the idols near Gilgal, he, turned, he himself turned back and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. The king said, Quiet, and all his attendants left him. Ehud then approached him while he was sitting alone in the upper room of his summer palace and said, I have a message from God for you. As the king rose from his seat, Ehud reached with his left hand, drew the sword from his right thigh, and plunged it into the king's belly. Even the handle sank in after the blade which came out his, his back. Ehud did not pull the sword out, and the fat closed in over it. Then Ehud went out to the porch. He shut the doors of the upper room behind him and locked them. After he had gone, the servants came and found the doors of the upper room locked. They said, he must be relieving himself in the inner room of the house. They waited to the point of embarrassment, but when he did not open the doors of the room, they took a key and unlocked them. There they saw their lord fallen to the floor dead. While they waited, Ehud got away. He passed by the idols and escaped to Sariah. When he arrived there, he blew a trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites went down with him from the hills, with him leading them. Follow me, he ordered. For the Lord has given Moab, your enemy, into your hands. So they followed him down, and taking possession of the fords of the Jordan that led to Moab, they allowed no one to cross over. At that time they struck down about 10,000 Moabites, all vigorous and strong. Not a man escaped. That day Moab was made subject to Israel, and the lad had peace for 80 years. After Ehud came Shamgar, son of Anath, who struck down 600 Philistines with an ox goad. He too saved Israel. That's God's word. So, um, we're looking at the book of Judges. I think we're going to be looking at it until coming up to Christmas and our evening services. And this is our third time looking at it. And before I say anything, um, let's just go back over a little bit of what we've done so far. 
The book covers the period of the history of God's chosen people after they finally made it to the promised land. God's people, as most of you probably know, had been slaves in Egypt, but they eventually escaped and left there in the great story we know as the Exodus. And they made their way, slowly, they made their way to the land that we know of as Israel. However, the land was inhabited by many different groups, and God told them to drive them out. And to do so, God told them to trust him, and he would give them victory. And the book of Judges then really comes on the aftermath of this attempt at driving them out. I say attempt, because as Christoph told us in the last two sermons, they weren't successful. What happens is, in, that, in many different ways, they repeatedly fail to trust God to give them the victory. This lack of faith of God is a, is a key theme of the book. In fact, it's the easiest theme to see as you read it. I mean, they just they continually turn their back on God. Do you do that? Is that true of your life? It's true of mine. Grant is, I haven't killed anyone. I haven't robbed anyone. I haven't set up some sign of cult. But I'm faithless every day. I'm disobedient in many ways every day. And furthermore, as we'll see, the Israelites, as we will see, sorry, the Israelites did not just stop trusting in God, but turned to trust in other gods. Similarly, though I know that Yahweh is the Lord of the world, and it's He's its Creator, and He's my Savior. In many ways, the dominant false spiritualities of the day exert an influence over me that I don't counteract. But we're going to look at that in a little while. The point that I want you to see is that this book is as much for you and me as it is for the people whom the book was written about. There's a lot of similarities between us and these Israelites. Now, as I've said, um, maybe many times before, these books previous to Judges, we see uh, God's people being told to have faith in him, to trust him. And every time they're told this, unfortunately, sooner or later, we see that they have a lack of faith in him. The book of Judges is no different. Sometimes this lack of trust was explicit, as when we see them being openly fearful about winning. Sometimes it's implied. We see that the that when they ask for help from their neighbors instead of trust in God, or they use common sense tactics in their fighting, tactics which to everyone in the world would make sense, except that these tactics make no reference to the Lord. He said, I want you to merely trust me for the victory. So whether it's explicit or implicit, there's a lot of not trusting God going on here. The result of all this lack of trust of God is that God punishes them. He lets them be taken over by other groups who then persecute them and eventually, eventually, it gets so bad, they start to cry out to God for help. At which time, God intervenes by sending them someone to save them. And this cycle I've just described is repeated throughout the book. And the saviors, the, uh, the rescuers, the deliverers within these cycles, these are the so-called judges. And tonight's passage looks at the first three of them. Now, last week, Christoph showed us that there is a tension in this book. Indeed, it's, all, it's, it's in all of the Old Testament. But in Judges, it's most apparent. On one hand, God is holy and just, and he can't tolerate or live with or bless evil. On the other hand, 
God is loving and faithful and can't tolerate losing the people he loves. So we're left wondering, when we see the terrible things that the people do, will God finally give up on his people? But if he does, what about his faithfulness? And also, would he finally give in to his people? In other words, will he relent and move them from their trouble that they've brought on themselves? But if he does that, what about his holiness? Now, Christoph also talked through some of the issues that come out of that. And in some ways, the whole book looks at this topic, this main topic again and again and again. What does God do in the face of a repeatedly faithless people? And the answer is, thankfully, that he repeatedly saves them. Well, tonight, we have the first kind of, I suppose, case studies of all these principles and themes um, that the first two chapters highlight. Um, and we've heard about these judges a few times, but here's the first three of them. Now, we're only going to look at uh, two, Othniel and Ehud. The last fella, Shamgar, he only gets the sentence, so fair play to anyone who could get a sermon out of him, but I'm not going to be doing it. Um, Keep, keep your Bible over there in, in page 244. Yes, I've said that, I think. And follow along with me as I go through it. I'll make some remarks along the way. Um, if you look there at the start, verse 7, we learn the Israelites, <coughs> excuse me, we learn the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Now, again, last week, Christoph told us that doing evil in God's eyes is a twofold thing. Firstly, you turn away from God. And secondly, you turn to something else instead. It's like repentance in reverse. And in this instance, what they do is they turn to Baal and Asherah, or the Baals and the Asherahs. Baal and Asherah, they were two local gods. I think they were all over the Middle East, actually, from what I've read. But as to their nature, you know, what, what of these kinds of false gods, do, do they even exist? What are they? Well, the New Testament makes explicit something that's it's not a huge theme in the Old Testament, although it is there as well, and that is that there is a being called the devil, and he does have a range of powers in this world. The New Testament calls him the ruler, or sometimes prince, or even god of this world. But the question is, do Baal and Asherah correspond to specific demons, to the devil himself, or is it just another name for the devil? We're not told, to be honest. It could be an individual that has responsibility for Baal, so to speak. I tend to think that these names like Baal and Asherah, and there's other ones in the Old Testament, Moloch and Mammon, um, they're less about individual demons, but more about the different ways that the devil and his angels interact with and tempt the people of our world. Specifically, then, we know that Baal and Asherah were false gods who operated in the area of provision and powerfulness. These are what the scholars called fertility gods. And I used to think, actually, I heard about this before, and I used to think that fertility was something to do with having a lot of children, which, which it is, right? But it's not only that, because actually for the people who worship these gods, fertility was a very broad package. It wasn't just about having children. It was about having, as well as a large family, large flocks, large herds, abundant crops. So for them, it was important not just to be fertile themselves, but also their animals and their plants, everything in life. That's what they wanted. And to translate that into our own day, then, Baal and Asherah can be found in the temptation that comes from our wealth and, our, and having good health. There could be others as well, but that's what came to my mind. 
Of course, there, you probably know there are some preachers, there are almost exclusively some former Protestants, it must be said, who preach a health and wealth gospel, the so-called prosperity gospel. And I think, I think more, I don't know, I'm, I'm assuming most of us in Kirkpatrick could probably see through that kind of stuff. But the true area where we can interact with modern-day Bells and Asherah is how we view our bank account and our assets and our health. There was a time um, when I would have told you to beware of, uh, of turning these things into false gods, and I would have told you that doing so entailed trusting in that thing, whatever it was, to provide all, um, to provide all, to look for them to provide all the things that we expect God to provide. And I, that's true. I still stand behind that, but I think there's more to it now. These things like health and wealth, they're not neutral. They don't just sit. In, they're not just sitting there waiting for us to use or abuse them. The devil uses these things and their allure to delude us into thinking that we can control them. They can call out to us and fool us into thinking that we are in control. And it's fine, you know, to have principles and guidelines about how we use these things. I believe the Bible gives us some of these, particularly about wealth. But we follow a God who told us to give the shirt off our back if we were asked for it. We, who told a rich young man to give away everything he had and told us that he who stores up possessions will not be rich towards God. The Israelites turned to forces that sought them out. We should, not be, we should be wary of the same thing happening to us. Anyway, as a result of all of this, God's anger, when they turned to Baal and to Asherah, God's anger burned against Israel. So he sends them trouble and he sells them out into the hands of this guy called Cushan Rishathium. This might appear harsh, and indeed it is. It's harsh, but it's harsh medicine. Because medicine it is. Because even here, in judging these people, God's actually acting kindly. If they had not brought about um, the suffering, if he had not brought about the suffering and difficulty for them, they wouldn't have seen their true position. They would not have seen how spiritually enslaved they were and what a judgment they were facing if, they, uh, if he had let them continue being physically enslaved. So he sends them suffering, not merely to pay them back, but to redeem them. And this is something I believe that he still does. Uh, my own conversion was precipitated by a period of a lot of anguish. <clears throat> and the choices in my life at the time that I was making resulted in increasing trouble for me. And I see now that the Lord caused these things to happen to open my eyes to him and to his reality. And there was a time, and for a few years after I was a Christian as well, where I hated what I'd gone through. But now I thank him for it. The Israelites, however, they lasted a lot longer than I did. I was about two years before I cracked. They were oppressed for eight years before they cried out. And the Lord sent them a deliverer. And having sent them trouble, God now sends them spiritual leadership. And the choice of leader is this guy, Othniel. Now, you might remember him if you're a sharp. Some of you might remember him from the first chapter. Um, and he's a good guy. He's the best guy in the whole book, actually. This guy is a real lover of God, one of the few in the whole book. In fact, he's the only person in the book where, no, where there is no explicit or implied fault to be found in him. Literally, if you look at the end of verse 9, um, it says, he saved him. 
and that actually leaves a kind of an ambiguity as to whether the author is talking about Othniel or God saving them. I think that ambiguity is actually deliberate um, as it reminds us that God can save us through his chosen leader, but both, in fact, are necessary to have his people delivered. Then, as well as trouble and spiritual leadership, God sends his spirit. He empowers this guy, Othniel, for the job that he has set him, which was to become Israel's judge and to go to war. So, summarize then. God sends trouble, leadership, and the spirit of God. This trio is what eventually brings restoration. <clears throat> because we're told that the Lord gave Cushan Rishathium into the hands of Othniel, who overpowered him. And then the land had peace for 40 years. This is peace not just, I should say, from physical oppression, but also from the self-inflicted spiritual oppression of idolatry, which we've been talking about earlier, which caused that physical oppression in the first place. So it's peace outward and inward. The judgeship, if you want to call it that, of Othniel, it's the best one in the book. He himself, as I said, is not portrayed with any flaws, and there's no mention within his time as a ruler of any disunity or any further idolatry, and you, you, you get a bit of that as the book goes on. God saves Israel through him, and everything is put to rights again. However, so I was a however in there. Eventually, this guy Othniel, he dies. And I thought this was a kind of a, I don't know, it was a, it was a passing point, but a few people made it, and it was like, well, actually, it's quite true. It might sound cold, but all of our leaders don't last. They either go away or they die. None of us last forever. And though it may be a small, almost seemingly insignificant point, we need to put our trust in the Lord and not in our leaders. Only Jesus lasts forever. We need a leader who doesn't die. In Revelations, Jesus says, I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive. The 40 years of peace that Othniel gained before his death is nothing compared to the everlasting peace Jesus gains for us after his death. So, that's Othniel. But the next judge then, this guy with the well, cool or strange story, I don't know how you look at it, but Ehud. After Othniel dies, the cycle begins again. Verse 12 tells us that the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. This time the Lord gives them over to Eglon, king of Moab. But this Eglon fella, he doesn't act alone. He gathers up an alliance to face God's people. And the treatment is worse because you'll see there that they attack, firstly, the city of Pams. Or Sam, no, Pam, sorry. This is another name for Jericho. Um, the city that you might remember where God gave his obedient people a great victory that was solely based on their trust of him. Another strange story. Instead of fighting at Jericho, God ordered them to march around with blowing trumpets for seven days. Everybody knows this one, right? Sunday school special. It's not, this isn't common sense military tactics. Instead, it's God sense. And God gave them the victory there where they trusted in God and not themselves. So it's kind of like a, I don't know what he's trying to do, maybe a, not, I wouldn't say sneaky, but, but having this place as the place where Eglon attacked them and gave them, the or, gave them over to him, it's a double blow. It's a reminder of their unfaithfulness and lack of trust in God at the place where they trusted him the most explicitly. Furthermore, this time, 
um, the suffering at the hands of uh, Eglon lasts a full decade longer. So everything's worse. And again, as in the last cycle with Othniel, people cry out to God, and in response, God sends them this fella, Ehud. Right? And what it tells us about this guy is, firstly, he's a left-handed man. Now, does that have any significance? Well, actually, yes, it does. If you look up the references in the Bible to right-handed or left-handed people, you'll find all the right-handed ones are very, very positive. God swears by his right hand. I always have to do that. His chosen one sits at his right hand. Why? Well, simply, most people were right-handed, and so it became a symbol of power and ability. You fought with your sword in your right hand. And actually, what the Bible says... um, might need to get new translations, actually. This book is a bit out of date. Uh, what the Bible says is that it doesn't say here that Ehud is left-handed, which he is. Actually, oh, sorry, where am I? I'm after losing myself. Uh, sorry, I've lost it. Yes, what the Bible says here isn't that Ehud is left-handed, which he is, but actually it says he was unable to use his right hand. And I think this is one of those um, translation issues where the literal interpretation might have been better to use as the emphasis is on his inability to use his right hand rather than his ability to use his left. It's very possible then actually and most of the I read about it said that this was the case that his right hand was paralyzed or some other way disabled. And this forms the background to one or the backdrop sorry to one of the major points from this judge. He was a surprising choice. Whereas Othniel was a warrior from a family of faithful men in the tribe of Judah, the very tribe that was chosen first to go into the promised land and take their inheritance, meaning that God ascribed him some significance. Othniel also is not recorded as having any flaws. He was a man of pedigree. But this guy Ehud was different. Firstly, um, he lived at a time that was much more intolerant than we are, and attitudes to people with physical handicaps could be severe. He would have been uh, considered ineffective at best. No one would have given him any thought to him being the leader to be chosen by God. And yet that's what God does. In fact, Ehud is uniquely situated, or, or suited, sorry, to this task of deliverance that God has chosen for him. The fact that he is left-handed means two things. Firstly, he's able to hide the special sword that he made. People carried the sword on the left-hand side and so any security that this king would have had would have been used to looking at that side to check if he was armed. So the question arises, will, will he pass undetected? And as it turns out, he does. Secondly, he's able to pass by undetected because of who he is. You see, he goes up to present his tribute to Eglon. Uh, a tribute is a kind of a payment or bribe that a, an oppressed people group have to pay. And while he's there, Eglon suspects nothing because being the man that he is with, the, with this handicap, people will think that he can't handle a sword at all. And even if they did see him with one, their predisposition would be to believe that he is less than capable. Whatever the form of prejudice that they had against him, when Ehud turns back to Eglon, Eglon is so unafraid of him that he allows his servants to leave the two of them together. And it's at this stage that Ehud delivers his message. And I should add, actually, that in the Pew Bibles you have in front of you, this is the NIV from 1984, there's a, there's a new one came out a couple of years ago, and all the other translations have this as well. 
This one says, when he plunged the sword into him, it came out of his back. But all the latest translations say that he emptied his bowels. It's a horrible scene. But that little fact explains why the servants assumed that he was relieving himself. Because of the smell. Anyways, in some, days, some ways I suppose that detail is not important. But it, it, it adds to the overall oddness of the situation, you know. It teaches us that God does not always choose people or methods to get things done that you would think he would. And there is a very easy application from all of this. You should not count yourself or your visible or apparent weaknesses, and you know them, I don't know them, as discounting you from being used by God. If you are called to do something, God will empower you. He might even use your weakness and turn it into a strength. However, the big point is that it's this story of Ehud that we should see more of how God saves his people rather than the stories of Othniel and the last guy, Shamgar. After Othniel, what we see is that each judge is unexpected as far as the world is concerned. All of the judges from Ehud onwards point us to Jesus. Jesus is unlike the judges who saved without their weaknesses. He did not use deception like Ehud or need assistance like Deborah and Barak. He didn't display selfish ambition like Gideon. And we'll be going over all these guys. Or rashness like Jephthah or sexual weakness like Samson. In fact, in every way, Jesus was flawless as Othniel appears to be according to the report that we find in this book. And yet, like all the major judges after Othniel, Jesus was also an outsider someone the world could not believe was either God's chosen ruler or rescuer. Jesus is still more of an unlikely and inside-out deliverer because he delivered his people not through victory and crushing defeat of the enemy, but through his own death. In all of these stories, judges' stories, then, God has shown us that his salvation will not come like the end of some action film. It'll come from an outsider born in an animal's feeding trough through weakness, not through strength, through defeat, and not through what the world called victory, victory, and through his own death, and not the death of those opposed to us. These stories are also showing us that God is a God of grace. That is that he, he saves us through his own actions and not through anything that we do or are, or don't do or are not. He takes and uses people from the margins of society in order to show that his salvation is from him and not from our human ability. Paul says in Corinthians that God tends to use and choose people who are weaker socially, physically, and even morally. Why? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And that... Let me think there now. It's good to know that, you know. That shatters this, the, the mindset, this uh, kind of idolatry mindset that we often bring when we're worshipping God or trying to live our life as a Christian. You see, all this stuff that we have in our life, what, generally what we do is we try and pay attention to them, we, we, we give attention to them, we, we, we spend time with them, we think that they will uh, uh, do what we want. And if we worship an idol, we're trying to stay fully in control of our lives, negotiating with this thing, giving it what it wants so that it gives us what we want. And that's not loving sub- submission like what we have with God. That's an attempt at manipulation. 
And this mindset, this idol mindset, it's critical that worship be consistent. It's like we need a technique, you know. We say we have to know that if we do X for this thing, then I, Y will result. Or put another way, if I do this, then he'll bless me in this way. But God is not an idol. We cannot treat him this way. And if we treat him this way, we'll only be disappointed at best. And if not, worse, as God seeks to correct our, our, um, our lives and our hearts so, so we worship him properly and worship, as, worship him as he is and not as who we wish he, wish he was. Instead, what we must do is turn to God and see that he demands total surrender from the center of our lives. No partial concessions, no negotiations, no bargains. We don't do deals with him because we've nothing to offer him. We should remember how we were before we met him and remember what we're like today when we walk away from him. It's good to think of those things because then we will know that he is truly gracious because we will see that we are really unexpected recipients of his grace. Who would have thought that the God of this universe could love me and you even while we were sinners? That's it. I'm just going to pray. Um, Dear God, please take something from this and apply it to our hearts. Let it produce much obedience and produce lots of rest and freedom in our lives. Let it bring you glory in some way, please. Amen. Um. <clears throat> yes, our last song, folks, uh, actually going what I've just been talking about, talks it away in which we have nothing to bring to God. It's all him that does our salvation. We don't need to bring anything to him to experience his love and care. It's called Rock of Ages. Let's sing.